All right, so today's story comes from Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. It follows directly after the story we told last week, just if you're keeping, keeping up and kind of keeping in the flow of things. And it, Matthew 25, 14 says, For the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Fun story. We have, uh, I hope, at this point, listening to this story, we don't listen to it out of context, but we listen to it in the context that we've been talking about this whole season, right? That at some level, I hope that we've come to take Jesus at his word, seeing that in the end, the way of the kingdom is indeed to repent, to be found in our lostness and received in our lifelessness, and to believe the good news that life on our own is over, and that the only real life that has ever been is life in him. And that life has moved into the neighborhood, like we read at the beginning. The story is told in the same context. Don't take it out of context. Take it in context. Repent and believe, says Jesus. Let the kingdom take hold of you as you grab hold of it yourself. And live in the assurance of hope in his absurd love and the conviction that there is always more than what is seen. In other words, live by faith. Faith that God is for you, that God is with you. And that life itself is and has always been his life through yours. See what John the Beloved saw in Jesus. We live off his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift. That's what John said even as he heard this story. The problem is, as Jesus knew, we really do prefer to live by calculation rather than faith. We, at least in everyday activities, are prone to operate more out of common sense rather than kingdom sense. The truth is, we are, even if we can't admit it, somewhat offended by the necessity of our neediness and the irrationality of grace. Oh, we accept it at our most desperate moments for sure. But still, day to day, we'd rather live off what we bring to the table in some negotiated collaboration with God rather than risk misstepping by somewhat foolishly living like Him. 
In all honesty, it's not always conscious desire that drives our daily living. Most of the time, we respond to life through muscle memory and the mesis. We have specific images and ideas of life with God, who He is, what He expects, how are we to behave, all learned through our various histories and habits that nearly mechanically prescribe to us how we move throughout the world. Likewise, we are mimickers. We see what others are doing and we copy, repeating it, especially when it seems to work and it's a life we want for ourselves. Both natural tendencies seem like wisdom for the survival of our species, don't they? Learning lessons from others and acting on what we have observed to be successful. The tension arises when we are unwilling to be shown a different way. And if anything is true about Jesus, it is that he shows us a different way. In our final parable of Epiphany Tide, Jesus lives, leaves us with an image of life with God and others that once again offends our pride, our common sense, and our sad vision of what is and is not possible. At the same time, Jesus' story at the end challenges us to live differently between the ends, to live off faith in what is received, because any other way of living is not really living at all. That's what this story, I think, is going to challenge us today. We've looked at this parable and its relation in Luke 19 several times over the years. While the two stories share many similarities, there's one, the story of the talents is what this story is called in Matthew 25, and the parable of the minas in Luke 19. They are, in fact, different stories and have different emphasis and different focuses. They are not interchangeable per se. But with that said, because we have hit on some of the particulars of these stories, they do share some similarities and overlaps in language. I'll not spend time explaining the cultural and linguistic nuances, but suppose you remember them. Like, you remember the, how much like, precious metals equals a talent? How much weight of precious metal equals a talent? Or that property really means not a physical property, but actual like, livelihood, life, all those kind of things. But you'll just remember that. Or if you're really curious, you'll go back and you'll look those things up. Also, you can get out and get to the Super Bowl on time. Um, so, like last week, what we're going to do then is we're just going to retell the story. And, s and let it settle into us as we settle into it. So before we begin, let's just do what we, like we did last week. Let's just take a minute to take a deep breath. Breathe in and breathe out. Let ourselves be present to God's presence with us. And just ask just for eyes to see and ears to hear. And then let's just settle into the story. So I'm just going to retell the story, adding in a little bit of context and uh, color that kind of fills in what, again, I most likely the first hearers would have had picked up on in the first place. So here's the story. This is what Jesus says, and it's a really beautiful thing. Life with God is like being in the service of one who entrusts you with his life. Life with God is like being in the service of one who entrusts you with his own life. Not a generic laborer, mind you, like some cog-in-the-wheel employee given basic responsibilities, but a trusted member of the household, gifted with what your master is confident you are able to do well with. He knows you, and he's given you what he knows you can do well with. You're given what is, is his and expected to use it to trade with it, to do business with it, and to build your life out of it. And those in his service are given an absurd amount to do something with. There is one who is given 100 years of salary up front on day one, another 40 years 
and another 20. And that's on top of the daily provision of life in the master's house. So while your generous patron is out of face-to-face sight, you and your fellow entrusted members are let loose to live on what you've been gifted. The expectation, as your master noted before his departure, is to take what is his and is now yours and live your life on it. The gift is not a stewardship so much as an inheritance. It's yours because it is his and because you're his. The person with 100 years wages jumps right into living off it laying down the Lord's life on what seems like a risky land renewal scheme. How foolhardily to go in all like that, to go all in like that. Forethought would dictate a more cautious and calculated approach to wealth management, don't you think? I mean, just think about all the lottery winners and how quickly they go, they lose all their winnings, right? But this first guy, he won the lotto, and he's ready to put it all in. um, But hey, what do you know? The investment doubles. Lucky him. The person with 40 years wages follows suit, seemingly throwing the master's gift around at every local entrepreneur's dream and housewife's industrious endeavor. Perhaps a little more diligence, you think, should go into the doling out of another's resources. But again, lucky guy, the investment doubles. Unconvinced by the fellow servant's fortuitous but risky revenues, the person with 20 years wages does the one practical, proper, and prudent thing. They lock the master's gift up in their personal vault. Let's be honest. The way the other servants are living puts the Lord's life at risk. They could lose, and in the end, that loss will be held against them. So why even chance getting it wrong? Besides, those fools don't know any more than you when the master will return. They'll be in hot water if he shows up, and what seems to be working now is no longer a net gain. So best be prepared. Bury your treasure. Inheritance can be taken back, can't they? Regardless, why not ensure you are able to return what is given, unblemished, cherished, and whole when the time is up? After a while and scene, the one you serve shows up to see what business has been done. He wants to know what life has been lived on his life by those he generously, uniquely, and confidently entrusted. Those that doubled up come in first. I mean, why wouldn't they? They're giddy at the extraordinary returns of his life and their lives. To these, the master says, well done, good and faithful servants. But wait, shouldn't he have said, well done, good and successful servants? Isn't the master measuring profit? Isn't that the win? Apparently, the one you serve is less in awe at the final number and more pleased with the heart of those who take what is his and use it. He confirms the suspicion since he says that their faithfulness has been over a little. A little? How is more than a lifetime's worth of resources something little? Maybe he counts differently than you. But wait, now he has given them even more than the more they already had. I will set you over much, the master says. And then the one you all serve invites them into his own heart. Enter into the joy of your master. A heart that was for them from the beginning and for them to have more and more and more of him. Considering how the lives of the two servants before appeared not to value what was given to them, at least not in the way they risked losing it by throwing it around so freely on uncertain exchanges, it's no wonder the third servant, the servant with 20 years wages, is a bit confused. Could they have missed something? Nevertheless, it is time and the final servant presents to the master precisely what was entrusted to him. 
no more, but also no less. Perhaps if the servant had gone first, they'd been more confident in their supposed regifting. But having witnessed the master's heart in reaction to the servant's hearts, this servant too shares from the heart. But, and this is just conjecture, for who really knows a person's heart but God? What comes out is a poor and hurried self-examination. Handing the master back his gift, the servant says, Master, I thought you were someone who always got what you wanted, no matter the manner. I thought you measured the faithfulness on not losing, even expecting more than you gave in return for your grace. In fact, I was afraid of you, of what you expected, of what I might lose out on if I lost. So I took care of your gift, but didn't risk living off of it. Here, take back what is yours. You thought I measured faithfulness by production, did you? Asked the one you served. You thought I was a bookkeeper, weighing what was given versus what was lost or what was gained? If you truly believe that, then you would have made the minimal effort to put my gift of life under the charge of those priest-backed temple money changers, as rotten as they are, and at least gotten a guaranteed return to give back to me. If you truly believed that I took what wasn't mine and always took more than was mine, then at least you would have tried to get a guaranteed something for me. No, in truth, you were too prideful, wicked and opposed to my way to do what I told you. Believing that you knew what was best for you, hiding it away. You were confident enough to live life on your own, that you didn't need my life to live. It wasn't fear of me that kept my gift buried away, it was fear of being foolish. You weren't being wise, you were lazy, hesitant to risk losing because you feared what you could, what you could be lost or the risk would not be worth it, worth the reward. Once again, you trusted what you thought you knew and not the one who knows you and gave you what you were able to live well upon. Either way, says the master, you're correct. What is mine is no longer yours, but you're also wrong. I won't reap where I did not sow. You'll keep your life, but it'll just be yours. No more house money for you, which you'll find to be a dark, sad, and bitter existence. But in truth, hasn't that been what you've been living on anyway? Turning to all those gathered at the end, the one you serve says, Oh, and give what is mine to the one who has so much of me already. For that is really how life with me operates. The more you live off of my life, the more of what is mine you receive. Abundance is the heart of life in me. But don't waste it by not living on it. That's the one thing you cannot do. What does it look like to be ready when the one we serve shows up? When history's party finally reaches its destination, like we talked about last week. The Apostle Paul told the faith family in Rome that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That is, life that is not lived, often assurance and conviction that God is with us and God is for us, misses the mark of His measurement. That's what sin literally means. It misses the mark of what God desires, what He wants, for us. Much like the parable preceding this one, we must ask what is missed out on by the one left in the darkness of life on their own, and why? In both stories, it seems that what is missed out on is being in the joy of the party being in the heart of the Father, the joy of the one we serve. Missing out because we live by calculation, assuming we have the things and ways of God figured out, 
rather than by faith in what he knows of us. Missing out because we live by fear, fear of being found a fool in the end or between the ends, rather than by faith in what is given to us in absurd abundance. And so we miss out on the freedom to discover the truth of real life, that it comes in spades as it's given away. What if we live like the, ones we, the one we serve? What if we live like the one who gave us his life? What if we believed in what his life produces? Believed he changes hearts, ours, of course, but even those who keep hurting our hearts. Believe, what if we believed he loves us, even our enemies? Or believed that he forgives you, and so you can too? Believed he overcame the world, so you don't have to. What if we believe that he gave us his life so that we cannot lose? Not really and not forever. So what do we have to lose in living by faith? What if we believed? Would we live differently? In the end, I think that's what Jesus asks us in his stories. All of his stories come down to the question that he started off with. Maybe it's not so much a question as an excited exhortation. But I hear it sometimes as a question. What if we believed? What if we let the kingdom grab hold of us and grabbed hold of the kingdom, repented in turn, and believed? How would life look different? As we move into Lent together, I think that's the question that we'll be asking ourselves. What would life be different if we believed? So why don't we start today asking that same question? I'm going to pray for us, and in just a moment, I, we're going to do what we've done the last few weeks. We'll spend a few minutes discussing a couple of questions. Questions of what does it look like to live by calculation and fear and not faith? In what ways are we doing that? And then what is different if we believed what Jesus said or when we believe what Jesus said? It's going to require some honesty from us, some vulnerability from us. But I think it'll be a good thing for us to at least have, especially in this smaller group, an opportunity to, to think on and dwell on. So I encourage you, even in the time that I'm praying, just to ask the Lord for the courage to be ones who live in the light. So let's do this. Let me pray for us, and then we'll talk together. Father, we thank you that the heart of the one who gave us life, who gives us life, is to give us more life. To invite us into his heart. Not just us to invite him into ours. Lord, we're, we're living in a way, Father Lord, that hides the life that you've given us, that reduces it to something that's not all that you desire it to be for, our, for us. I pray, Father, Lord, just for, yeah, just for the Spirit to free us to see, as John saw, Lord, that through Jesus there is grace upon grace. Father, where we, um, where we believe but uh, still have unbelief, Father, I pray that you would help us. Or to live by faith. Father, where, um, where there is wholeness in our lives, I pray, Lord, that you would, um, we would hear, Father, Lord, you say, well done, good and faithful servant. I thank you for my friends and for an opportunity to sit under your word together. 
Father Lord, and to discuss together in your spirit what it is that life with you might look like together.